Welcome to the Wellness Journey Podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I'm Dr. Mariette Danilo, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to journey with you through these challenging times and to hopefully provide you with information that will help sustain you. Our podcasts are aimed at keeping you healthy in mind, body, and spirit. This is Podcast 8. Today, we have an interview entitled Community Life in a Time of Pandemic, an interview with Sister Mercedes McCann. Sister Mercedes McCann serves as a psychotherapist for the St. John Vianney Center and Catholic clinical consultants, providing a multidimensional psychotherapy. Before coming to the St. John Vianney Center, Sister Mercedes ministered in several state and county institutions for the mentally ill. She has also served as a formation minister for the Sisters of Mercy, as assistant superintendent for special education for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, as well as numerous other positions within the field of special education. She has extensive experience facilitating small and large groups for religious communities including chapters and assemblies, as well as speaking to groups of religious in the United States, Latin America, Europe, and the Pacific Rim on various topics concerning religious life, such as boundaries in religious life, the priesthood, change and transition, emotional development, and the spirituality of aging. Her particular interest is in the intersection of spirituality, ministry, community, and good mental health in religious life. Sister Mercedes is a member of the Sisters of Mercy of the Americas Mid-Atlantic Community. She holds a PhD in clinical psychology from Seton Hall University and a master's in psychology from Marywood University. She further completed religious studies with a concentration in sacred scripture from St. Charles Seminary. So welcome, Sister Mercedes. It is so good to have you here. You are one of my favorite people to work with, and I'm just delighted that you could take the time to um, be interviewed today. I'm very happy to be here, Mariette. Nice to be here with you as well. Thank you. So let's, people, if, if our listeners aren't as familiar with you as, as most of us are, uh, I'd like to have you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the St. John Vianney Center and what brought you to this, this kind of work. Well, as Mariette pointed out when uh, she was giving a slight CV about me, she said, I have a particular interest in the intersection between theology, spirituality, and psychology. So when I had completed my doctorate in clinical psychology, I was offered the position here at St. John Vianney Center, and it seemed like the perfect marriage, although there were three entities in that marriage, the perfect marriage between theology, spirituality, and psychology. So that was really what attracted me to make uh, to working with the population that we serve here at St. John Vianney Center. I also wanted to continue to serve the church as I had done for most of my religious life. 
and to give support where I can to those folks who are struggling within their ministries in the church at this time, or who were struggling perhaps with community life. And I wanted to be a vehicle for healing and change for those people. So basically that's why I came to St. John Vianney Center. What I do here is I do therapy with inpatients, both individually and also in group. And then I also see outpatients on a weekly or maybe a monthly basis, uh, only individually. I don't do any outpatient groups. And then further, I represent St. John Vianney Center as a speaker to religious communities of men and women, and as a facilitator for groups of religious men and women in uh, facilitating group processes and so on. Okay. So basically, that, that fills my day. Is that all? That's it. Oh my goodness. I'll tell you, I, I want to know what kind of vitamins you take. Um, you recently brought uh, to our attention your concern about what women religious living in communities are experiencing during this pandemic. In fact, you are the person who suggested the title of this talk, which is Community Life in a Time of Pandemic. So what are you seeing and what are your concerns about any future fallout? Well, what I have been observing either myself both in myself and in people around me. And what I've been told by members of religious communities is that there's a concern that as we continue to move through the pandemic, number one, we're anesthetizing ourselves against the possibility that this might take longer than we initially thought. I remember when back, I guess it was probably the end of February, beginning of March, when this began to get on the radar screen, we were talking about, oh, maybe three weeks. Well, three weeks has morphed into over three months. And I think even as the country begins to open up, we're becoming more aware of the fact that this will take much longer than even the three, three and a half months that have already passed. So what one of the things I've been observing is this disillusionment that once it's over, it's over. And that simply isn't going to be the case. Our, I think our lives have changed in a way that we probably will not go back to whatever normal, quote unquote, was for us before. At this point, the other thing that I'm observing is a certain degree of restlessness within religious communities. People are anticipating that it's going to get a little bit easier to maneuver in our environments and so I think added to that, there's a certain degree of being less careful than we had been in the three, three and a half to four months that we've been a part of. So you see people going out without masks or you see people uh, doing a little bit of retail therapy more than they were doing in those first three and a half to four months. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a desire within us to return to whatever that normal was but it has the proclivity of being dangerous behavior. And we've, we've also seen, I think it's something like 20 some states now that are observing a spike in the occurrence of COVID-19. And so that ought to be a warning to us that 
we can't go into this uh, letting it letting it dissipate a little bit too quickly, or we're going to be back up where we were three and a half to four months ago. The other thing that I'm observing is a certain degree of burnout. Some people are uh, expressing the burnout right now. Other people may not feel it at the moment, but it might be a collateral effect as we move down the road a piece. So people are becoming burnt out with being by themselves or being inside with the community with whom they live over a, a protracted period of time. They're getting bored. They're sad. Um, many, many people have not been able to return to ministries. And for those women and men for whom their ministry was their identification, that becomes very difficult for them and that, that adds to the feeling of burnout. Um, the idea of failure, especially where people have been dealing with death, either as a family member, a friend, a member of the community, a member of the ministry in which they worked, this idea of I, I should not have let them die. There must have been something else I could have done despite having offered the best support and the best care possible. So that feeling of failure can lead to burnout. A tiredness. I mean, many, many of us have been working 24-7 because as our compatriots have become sick, we've had to fill in more time or with uh, more hours than we had in the past and that's adding to the tiredness, the fatigue that we feel, and also the fatigue of just being stuck in this for so long. So there's an absence of joy. And I think that can learn to the burnout. There's a psychological as well as a physical exhaustion. And then we begin to question, well, what are our values in all of this? Another uh, piece that contributes to the burnout is negativity with everyone about everything. Uh, some people, you know, zero in on the uh, important restrictions, but in the whole schema of things, they're, they're not the worst thing that we could be going through. So going through, you know, complaining about having to wear a mask all the time or the visiting restrictions, perhaps in our convents, in our rectories, in our seminaries, in our novitiates, um, you know, when am I going to see family? When am I going to be able to have a face-to-face -face conversation with friends again? All of those things contribute to the burnout, which then morphs into a negative attitude toward life in general. You know, an erosion of self-esteem, uh, free-floating hostility, why is this happening to us? Anger, perhaps, at people who aren't complying with what we ought to be doing all of that contributes to the feeling of burnout. And then if not addressed, the feeling of burnout can become depression and anxiety. So those are some of the things that I've observed that, that I think we have to be particularly mindful of both in ourselves and also in the people with whom we live and work. Thank you. So in terms of what we can glean from this, in terms of perhaps even prevention or how to navigate um, a little more successfully, how do we continue 
to traverse the pandemic landscape in a healthy manner as we move into the future. And if you could provide us with some practical suggestions, that would be helpful as well. Self-care, self-care, and more self-care. Most of us are engaged in ministries where we're giving, giving, giving of ourselves a good portion of the time. And I think as, especially as men and women religious and diocesan priests, where we come from a culture that says, well, you, you, you give and give and give. You don't worry about caring for yourself. Not a very healthy way to live under the best of circumstances, but certainly not a healthy way to live right now. If we're not taking care of ourselves, then we are definitely not going to be able to take care of anybody else. And as Mariette has often pointed out in some of the talks that she gives for St. John Vianney Center, there's a reason why on the airplane, right after you take off, and the folks are kind of guiding you through what the culture of flying is about, one of the things they say is, put your own mask on first, and then put on the mask of the child who's with you. So in terms of how do we take care of ourselves, we put on our own masks first with a little bit of self-care so that we can continue to be there for one another in a healthy manner. Taking time for yourself periodically throughout the day, um, making sure that you take time to have lunch, that you have breakfast before you come to work, or if you're on a night shift that you, know, you, you eat dinner before you come to work that you take little periods of time during the day. Find a quiet place for yourself. Um, if that means taking five minutes to just go for a walk around the building where you work, that's important. And of course, many of us, especially if we're working in a neighborhood, as soon as somebody sees you on the street, they wanna come up and talk and so on. So what I found that is especially helpful with that is Put your ear pods in, carry your cell phone, and every so often just nod your head. Don't put anything on the cell phone. Don't be listening to anything. Just quiet. Let your mind clear itself. But nod every so often so that the passerby on the street thinks that you're in some kind of an important conversation. Mindfulness. Stay in the present moment. Do not worry about what the future is going to bring. You have no control over it whatsoever. It will be what it will be. So staying in the present moment and being mindful of yourself in the situation in which you find yourself in that moment. Um, make yourself aware of what you are feeling. Identify the feeling. It might be, it might be a feeling of anxiety. It might be a feeling of fear. Um, it might be a feeling of feeling relieved, I'm, I'm going to be going home in another hour or two. Acknowledge the feeling, accept it, pay attention to it, and let it go. Examine your expectations of yourself. No one of us, including Dr. Fauci, no one of us is going to be able to solve this all by ourselves. So we can't put those expectations on ourselves. We can only do the best that we can each day. Um, and being aware of what we can and we cannot control. And what you can't control, let go of. 
being aware of what you're doing for each person and what you're giving to each person. It might only be the presence in the room. It might only be, you know, speaking in a very calm voice. It might only be the empathy that we give to a family or a friend or someone whom we know. Being aware that that is something that you can do and that you're very good at doing. So you're giving something to the other person. Acknowledge that. Pat yourself on the back. Have a little bit of self-appreciation. Where have you been a positive influence? At the end of the day, each day, but maybe hour by hour. Okay, looking back over an hour for maybe a minute and say, okay, what did I do in this past hour that's helped me to be a positive influence? Processing your feelings with a colleague or with someone with whom you live so that you don't think of yourself as a voice crying in the wilderness that no one else is feeling what I'm feeling. Even if the feelings you're having are negative, there's a very good possibility that other people are feeling the same way. So process that with a colleague. And then catch your own negativity so that it doesn't mushroom, that it doesn't grow. Those would be some ideas of what you can do for yourself. And they're very simple ideas, but they all come out of that mindfulness construct. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. I'm certainly writing those down. Um, let me ask you, what do you think we should be acutely aware of, or what should we be conscious of as we move forward? Anything important to, to just keep conscious of? Well, I think we're all living more closely with one another than we were three to three and a half months ago. About three, three to four weeks ago, there was an article in the Sunday New York Times about couples who have been living together very closely. <laughs> over these past three to three and a half months and the things that are getting on their nerves. And they're, they're <laughs> all things of no consequence. One woman said it was the way her husband eats popcorn. And he's always eaten popcorn this way, but it's driving her crazy. Somebody else, it was the way in which her husband uses the silverware when they're eating together. So they're zeroing in on these pretty non-significant things that have been there all along, but three to three and a half months, most married couples haven't been living that closely. They, you know, somebody goes out to work each day as a rule. The same thing is true in community life, in rectory life, we're becoming much more conscious of one another. And so we're likely to be getting on each other's nerves a little bit more than maybe we normally would. The other thing is many of us are working from home. So as we're working from home, that also presents an issue in the community. You may have a community or a rectory where only one person is actually working from home and the other people aren't able to do that. Whatever their line of ministry is, they're not able to do it. So being conscious of the person who's working from home and giving them a little bit of space and a, certainly a quiet space where they can do that work would be very important. And then the person who is working from home, being conscious of everybody else needing more space in the house just to get away from the other people for five or 10 minutes during the day. 
also readjusting to returning to work. Some of us have really liked working from home and are maybe not anxious to get back into the, the grind again. So being very conscious of yourself as you readjust to going back into whatever your ministry or work situation is, that it is a readjustment. In some ways, it's like starting all over again because the rules have changed in your workplace and you're going to have to adapt to those rules and regulations. So giving yourself a little bit of leeway as you readjust. Hanging on to the slowing down that the pandemic has kind of enforced on each one of us, not giving that up, not getting back into a rat race kind of living that wasn't healthy in the first place. So hopefully one of the, the pluses of the pandemic has been that we've increased our interiority and we're more aware of what goes on with us internally. So trying to hold on to that as much as possible, it's a gift. It's the gift, the only gift, the silver lining of the pandemic, but it has been helpful for, for most of us. Um, being aware of, as, as I said a little bit earlier, of what is getting on our nerves. I, I came across uh, a phobia or a phonia the other day that I had never heard of before. I don't know if it's new coined or what, but it's called misophonia. And it happens to be when the person becomes increasingly much more aware of sounds and noises around them that really wear on them and get on their nerves. When we're busy about many things, we're not necessarily uh, tuning in to some of these sounds and noises. But when we've been quiet or when we're more confined, the sounds and noises can take on a life of their own. So being aware of those. I happen to live in a house where the people next door have chickens. <laughs> now, in, in my way distant past, you know, two or three generations ago, I come from a long line of farmers. So I really don't mind the sound of the chickens. I kind of like it if I'm sitting outside and I can hear them chirping away. I live with a sister who is being driven crazy by the sound of the chickens. They never bothered her before. She was out the better part of the day in her ministry, but now the chickens are driving her crazy. So being aware of those sounds that really get on our nerves and trying to find a way to limit our uh, connection to those sounds and maybe blotting them out with music or with something else. Uh, being aware of one another, we all do not respond to crisis in the same way. Some people have loved this time of isolation. They've loved the permission for not having to move around peripatetically every single day. They've really enjoyed it. Others of us are chomping at the bit. We can't get we just can't wait to get back into the life of ministry that we were used to before. So being aware of what your adaptation to the pandemic has been, giving yourself permission to have that. It's not that one is good and one is not good. They're both good. But then giving the other person the benefit of the doubt, the leeway to adapt and readapt 
when we go back into the ministries that we've been engaged in. And then finally, meeting together as, you know, living together in community life or in a rectory where you have, you know, maybe more than one person living there, meeting together to talk about how we feel and how we're going to manage right now, today, and how we're going to manage in the future as we keep moving through the, this, this crisis. So that, that leads me into the whole idea of communication. Yes, so. yes. Um, and before, before you continue, you say so many interesting things I could, uh, you know, probe at any one of them, but you mentioned some uh, a few weeks ago, I heard you mention the danger of becoming addicted to isolation. Do you want to speak to that? Oh, absolutely. Um, people, well, first of all, people who are highly introverted, this was definitely a wonderful experience in terms of the isolation part, especially if they live by themselves. Um, if they live in a community, there probably is a community structure that they, they at least have to emerge from their room for an hour a day. But for people who tend to be maybe more on the edge of the community, on the edge of the rectory, not engage a whole lot under normal circumstances, they can become addicted to this isolation and want to continue it. And so once our lives have opened up again, it's going to be very difficult for those people to re-engage. It's going to require a lot of patience on the part of people who live with them. And it's going to require the folks who live with them or family members or friends in the community or in the diocese to keep encouraging them to join, to come back in. We miss having you. Please come back. We'd like to go out for dinner with you. We'd like to do whatever it is. Um, those would be some very important things. And if you've found yourself becoming addicted to the isolation, then treating it like any other addiction, being mindful of it and step by step working your way back into the interaction with all of the people around you. Thank you. Um, and before we can uh, go on to the, to talk about the importance of communication. Do you want to say anything about loss, the, the experience of loss uh, within the communities? Um, I, yeah. Well, there's certain, I, I would hazard a guess that very few communities have not experienced loss, either family members of persons in the community, the men or women in the community, the people who live in the rectory, or members of the community who have died in these past three and a half months, either died of COVID or died of something maybe associated with that. I think one of the, the first things to do is to ritualize the loss. It, we've not been able to have funerals, viewings, those kinds of things in the same way. So there needs to be some ritual by way, by way of uh, bringing closure as much as we can possibly do that at this time to the loss. So I know of communities that normally when they have a funeral, they do some storytelling about the individual. Anybody in the family or in the community is able to do that. Or of course, 
we've not been able to have funerals in the same way. So what they've done is they've organized Zoom storytelling where any member of the community can get on this Zoom call and anyone, a member of the community or a member of the person's family can enter into the storytelling process by telling some story about the community member that was you know, particularly touching to them or maybe something even funny that they had shared with this person. So that's a way of uh, ritualizing. Um, I talked to somebody just recently who said that the way they've been ritualizing is on a Zoom throughout the community where they say the office for the day. That's another way of, of ritualizing. Whatever you, it might be in a local community, you could have a ritual. You know, it wouldn't have to be necessarily a Zoom with a larger community. It could be a local community where you would have a ritual just for the present time. When we are better able to move around in our environments, then perhaps other rituals will come forward again, such as memorial masses and things like that. But I don't think that we can wait for that. I think we need to be ritualizing as close to the loss as we possibly can. Well, thank you. Um, I would imagine, and I know you talk a great deal about this, but why, why is communication within these communities, why is communication more critical than ever right now? And I mean, we just did a podcast and we talked about quality relationships. We talked about intimacy and that real, you know, having to make yourself vulnerable mm -hmm. in order to have, in order to discover those relationships. Do you want to speak to that? Um, well, communication is paramount, I think, at this point in time. It's really important that the people with whom we live, the people whom we meet up with each day, know what's going on inside of us. Because if they don't, they may misinterpret our isolation. They might misinterpret our being quiet. They may misinterpret our need to, you know, follow the news 24 seven. So it's important for us to communicate what we are feeling and to take time to be with each other. And I, and I mean, I don't mean time watching the news together. That's not quality time. Quality time might be after morning prayer or after Compline at night saying, well, how was your day today? You know, what, what happened today? How are you feeling at the end of this day? Um, talking about the absurdities of the day, you know, some of the crazy things. There's that plenty happened. of those. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, that, you know, that have maybe given you reason to chuckle. Yeah. It might also be that you don't, you can't identify the feeling. I mean, there have been some, some very unusual things that have happened over these past three and a half to four months that we may not be able to identify the feeling. And that's all right. But being able to say that, to be vulnerable to not enough to say, you know what, I honestly don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know if I'm fearful. I don't know if I'm anxious. I don't know if I'm depressed. I don't know what I'm feeling. And I don't seem to be feeling what everyone else is feeling. That's all right. Because in that conversation with that other person or those people, 
the more we talk about it, the more crystallized the feeling can become so that we would maybe able to identify whatever it is. I think communication is also important in expressing our needs. Um, if you've been at the bedside of people who have died of COVID-19, or if you have been the person who's had to stay with a family who couldn't be with somebody dying, what do you need at the end of that day? You know, being willing and able to put that vulnerability on the line, coming home maybe at the end of a day in a hospital or a nursing home and saying, you know what, I honestly can't go to dinner tonight. I really have to just go to my room and sit and consolidate whatever happened today. And when I feel able, I'll join the group again. That's, that's fine. Expressing that need is, is really important. Um, and then being mindful of addictions that might get exacerbated in, in this time. Uh, being mindful of one another and being mindful of ourselves. So if alcohol, if um, food, if television, if isolation, if you begin to see that in someone else in the community or you begin to notice it in yourself, be willing to talk about it because that's one of the best ways to, to tame the addiction. And also to show concern for one another. Mm. Tell, tell, you mentioned the word joy a lot. Tell me about how that might, um, how someone might permit themselves uh, to, to feel joy and to experience joy, even in the midst of the context of this terrible, terrible situation. Well, I'm going to take joy. I'm going to take a little bit of a different um, slant on joy. And I'm going to say, I'm going to use hope as, as the vehicle to get to joy. Um, during Lent, and I guess, well, up until about two weeks ago, I went to the Vatican for Mass every day. And luckily, I mean, I wouldn't have done that had it not been translated, but everything was translated. And what I, especially during Lent, what I began to become aware of was Pope Francis, I would hazard a guess, four days out of every seven, he brought the virtue of hope into his homily. He did not skirt around the issue of the pandemic. He didn't skirt around the fact that people were dying, that people were suffering, that people were having to work double and triple time in order to serve folks who needed it during the pandemic. But he talked about keeping ourselves hopeful that this, we have lived through things like this before and the human race is still moving forward. So putting our minds and hearts in line with whatever God has in, in his mind and heart for us and being hopeful that this, this will get better along the way. Um, he used, in one of his homilies, he used the line from scripture, do not let your hearts be troubled. So if you take that and turn it around a little bit, allow your hearts to be joyful. You're not going to be joyful every minute of every day. We have to acknowledge the sorrow 
that we feel and that's all around us, but joyful in the fact that God is with us and God will give us the grace to get through this time in our lives. So I think having that exercising, you know, the virtues are kind of like a spiritual muscle, exercising that hopefulness will help us to have the feelings of joy at a very deep level. Joy, joy is not laughter. It's not fun. It's not those kinds of things. It's at a very, very deep level. Mm. I, I like to think of it as part of it as peace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I was, I was going to ask you where our, where you thought our minds and hearts should be turning at this time. I think you just answered that very well. But do you have anything to add? I do. I think one of the um, downfalls or one of the negative side effects of having been through this for three and a half to four months now is what I call anticipatory grief. I think people, we are grieving on a micro level We may have been touched very personally by the pandemic, but we're also grieving on a macro level. The entire world is being affected by this. The loss of family, friends, community members, a loss of normalcy, that's grieving. You know, I'm grieving the life that I used to have. I'm grieving the daily connections I could have with people. And the anticipatory grief comes in with, and this might go on for a long, long time. You know, you'll, you'll hear, depending on who you're listening to, well, it could be into the fall. We could have a spike in the winter time. It could take a whole year. We won't have a vaccine. All of that contributes to anticipatory grief. So I'm suggesting that we substitute anticipatory grief with anticipatory hope. Mm. As I said, We've been through mm-hmm. we've been through this before. We've certainly been through plagues and that kind of thing. The human race has come through it and been able to move on. So we've not only survived, but we've thrived in the midst of a lot of very negative things that have happened in your lifetime, my lifetime, and the lifetimes of the folks who are listening in. So I, I'd like to suggest that anticipatory hope is really probably one of the best medicines that we could be taking at this time. Well, I'm going to remember that one. You are just what the doctor ordered. <laughs> well, um, and guess what? Your your insurance. You don't have to worry about whether or not your insurance will pay for it. Anticipatory hope comes from <laughs> nothing. You just have to work at it. Aren't, isn't that the truth? The best things in life. Well, sister, thank you so much for being with us today. I know how busy you are and I'm trying to get you to do this for a little while here. And uh, I'm sure that um, people who are listening today will um, benefit much by your, from your wisdom. Anyway. My what, pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you again. You're in our prayers and please keep us thank in you. yours. I definitely will. You've been listening to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I hope today's interview, Community Life at a Time of Pandemic, an interview with Sister Mercedes McCann, proves helpful to you. You can find all our podcasts and get additional information and resources for clergy and religious by visiting our website 
at sjvcenter.org. Remember, we're companions on the journey to stay healthy in mind, body, and spirit. We are the St. John Vianney Center, and our mission is you.